Let's begin our time this morning with a word of prayer. Our great God, high eternal one, we come to your throne room, as it were, to hear your word. And our prayer is that you would give us ears to hear, that we would hear what you have written, that we would see what you have done, And that in our hearts, we would not only accept what you have done, that we would embrace it, that we would celebrate what you have done. We ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us compassion as we look at a very controversial issue this morning. We pray for your guidance and that our our hearts would bow before your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Jeremy mentioned during the announcements, this is week three of a five-week series on current cultural confusion, and we've titled the series, We Are His Creatures, because each of these areas of confusion relates specifically to our identity as His creatures. In his opening message, Pastor Jeremy explained the two main principles which are at the heart of all of these issues. One, God made us. He made us. And as our maker, he made us as he saw fit. And as our maker, he has the right to place us under obligations and laws. And second, God made us as embodied souls. That is, there is an an inherent link between our soul and our body, which cannot be separated but by death. Our bodies and our souls are who we are, and you cannot separate them. Those two principles are foundational to many different aspects of Christianity. And I think they're going to serve us well in all of our life, not just with these topics. Last week, Pastor Jeremy applied them to the evil of abortion. And next week, he'll apply them to the issue of transgenderism. But this morning, the task falls to me to apply them to homosexuality. We were living, Amy and I, and... Aiden, maybe Jonathan, I don't know, in California in 2008. 2008, when Proposition 8 was approved in California by a clear majority vote, and the state constitution was amended to include only marriage between a man and a woman is valid or recognized in California. That was a popular vote in California 11 years ago. That shows how rapidly the culture has shifted in the last decade. That same statement, only marriage between a man and a woman is valid, if it were made today by a public figure in California, would almost certainly spell the end of his career or her career, if not land them in court. The Supreme Court's Obergefell decision in 2015 guaranteed same-sex couples the legal right to marriage. And since then, our media, politicians, 
and the broader society have embraced this decision with zeal and a rediscovered religious fervor. If you don't have someone in your family who is practicing homosexuality, you probably have a friend, a coworker, a classmate who is. And with our society's eager embrace of this issue, it's unavoidable for us. This is not a topic that we can ignore. The encouraging news for us as believers is that the word of God has not changed. It's no different now than it was 2,000 years ago. And his word gives us plain and clear answers in understanding how to respond to homosexuality. What I want to do this morning is look first at the arguments that are often put forward in favor of homosexuality. Then I want to look at what the Bible says specifically about homosexuality. And then finally, I want to answer the question, how can we love those who support homosexuality? So let's begin by looking at the argument supporting homosexuality. And I do not plan to get into a lot of details about this. I'm going to simply let you know what they are so they can be in your mind. This isn't, I don't think, the place to have a full-blown discussion of the issue. We'll spend more time on the principles underlying them. Many specific arguments are given. I pared this down considerably. I've just chosen four. I think you're probably the most likely to encounter Number one, this is a free country. You can't tell me who I can and can't love. I can't. You're right. I don't have the authority to do that. But God does. I don't need to. God does tell you and me who we can and cannot love. And our argument is not that you cannot love someone else. Our argument is that you should not. It is not an issue of ability. It is an issue of morality, whether or not you should or shouldn't. A second argument put forward is that society created marriage, so society can redefine marriage. That's False, God created marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And even if you come from a completely unbiblical worldview, I'd like to know how you got a society without first believing in marriage. Even if there were only two in the beginning, somehow miraculously through evolution, how did you get a society? You got it through a husband and a wife. And as God's, as, because God is the creator of marriage, God can define it. Three, another argument you might hear is that God made me this way. And I can't change anyway. I can't change who I am. That sounds plausible, but that could be used to excuse any sin or anything. God made me this way. God made me a thief. Can't help it, officer. He made me this way. I don't think that will work because it would leave us with a completely lawless society. It would leave us with no laws at all because, hey, this is how I was born. 
I can't change. A fourth argument supporting homosexuality is that the Bible only addresses corrupt forms of homosexuality. If you pick up any liberal-leaning commentaries on the biblical passages regarding homosexuality, this is going, you're going to come across this. This is very popular. The Bible is only talking about corrupt forms of homosexuality. It's not talking about the committed, consensual, loving relationships that we have today. But you begged the question, What we're talking about is whether or not there is such a thing as an uncorrupt form of homosexuality. You assumed that there are good forms of homosexuality and then asserted that yours are the good ones and the Bible was addressing the bad ones. This same argument would leave us with no law against adultery because the Bible was only talking about the corrupt forms of adultery those that weren't loving or consensual, that weren't in a committed relationship. But the Bible makes it clear adultery is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Now, all of those arguments, I don't think in any way you're going to go out of here with now your, your, uh, um, your, your belt full of all the tools to answer all the arguments. There are dozens and dozens of different lines of reasoning put forward in support of homosexuality. These are just four of the very common ones. I think what's much more helpful than looking at all the specific arguments is examining what the principles are that underlie all those arguments. There are certain presuppositions, certain worldview principles that begin and lead out into these arguments. That's what I would like to focus on, at least a little bit more than those specific ones. What are the principles that underlie these arguments? How do people come up with these things? And I want to suggest that there's two primary principles that are behind the arguments. They're primary beliefs or assumptions or presuppositions that someone has bought into has already embraced and accepted before they conclude homosexuality is right or good or acceptable. The first principle is that the morality of sexuality is relative to our culture or society. The morality of sexuality is relative to your culture or society. This is moral relativism applied to the topic of homosexuality. There are no moral absolutes. Instead, each culture gets to determine what's right for it. Each society determines what's right for it. Each family determines what's right for it. Now, there's a hint of truth or perhaps a sliver of truth in moral relativism that is very important for us to know. We need to to understand this truth. There are customs and practices, priorities and opinions, which are relative, but they are not morals. 
Do you look someone in the eye when you greet them? In certain cultures, that is unacceptable, dishonoring, shameful. You do not look at someone in the eyes who is in a rank or position above you. In another culture, you better look someone in the eyes when you meet them or you're showing them disrespect or perhaps you're a shady character. Do you take your shoes off when you walk into the house? Some cultures would be quite insulted if you took off your shoes, as well as quite uncomfortable because the room would stink. But in other cultures, like our own, it's common practice to remove your shoes when you walk into someone's home because they're very dirty. And we have nice carpets and floors instead of dirt floors. So there are issues, customs and practices, opinions that are relative, but none of those are issues of morality. The Bible does not tell us what practices we must have in that aspect or in that regard. The Bible tells us what we ought to do always. In all circumstances, the Bible gives us morality. Moral relativism is very convenient when someone else is talking about your sins. It's very easy to claim you have different standards, you have different morals than someone else, and that's why you're innocent. Perhaps you catch one of your employees stealing, pilfering, from what he's assigned to do, taking parts out of a bin, taking tools home that don't belong to him, and you say, that's wrong, you can't do that. It would be very convenient for him to say, in my family, that was totally fine. Where I came from, as long as you don't get caught, it's fine. So I'm sorry I got caught, but I don't think I did anything wrong. Moral relativism is quite convenient when you're trying to deny a sin. But what happens if you accept it? You're left with a knife so sharp, it will cut you. You can't use this knife without hurting yourself. What would you say to the person who claimed absolute relativism? I say it that way intentionally. Moral relativism, that everything is relative. What they must embrace is that there is no such thing as right or wrong. Nothing could be called wrong Oh, it's only wrong for you. It might not be wrong for me. But you might point out that paragons of evil such as Hitler or Stalin are very hard to criticize if you accept moral relativism. Hitler in his society and in his culture and in his family was quite confident what he was doing was fine. And who can argue that Stalin didn't at least at the beginning believe what he was doing was the right thing to do? It was a necessary evil, perhaps. He had to get through it, but he believed that this was the right thing to do. 
If you embrace moral relativism, you are left with no foundation at all. What would they say if you hit them, struck them in the face, or took their wallet from them? Do you think they'd believe in moral relativism then? Or would they respond that you can't do that? Well, why not? In my society, it's acceptable to hit people that contradict me. Would they embrace that? I don't think so. Moral relativism will destroy you if you accept it. But remember that there are aspects of life, opinions, priorities, preferences, customs, practices that can be relative, but morality is not. The second principle that underlines all these arguments supporting homosexuality is that personal identity is determined by our feelings, not our bodies. Personal identity is determined by our feelings, not our bodies. Now, I think most of you will recognize the relativism that's inherent in a lot of these arguments. I think this second principle is a lot more hidden or it's harder to, to uh, recognize. When you hear things like, God made me this way, or I can't keep who I am hidden, or I'm just being authentic with my true self, I think sometimes it's hard for us to figure out how to respond. What do you say to that? I think we need to point out the specific error that is underlying this type of thinking. The specific error of this principle that our identities are determined by our feelings and not by our bodies is that it creates a false dichotomy between body and soul. Then it makes the soul superior to the body. And thirdly, it defines our soul as what we feel. It separates body and soul. It prioritizes the soul over the body. Then it redefines soul to mean whatever you feel. And once you've done that, you have no answer to give. That's what's happened to our society. It has no answer. It has no way to combat even what it might think is not right. Fundamentally, the error of this principle is that it begins by separating the body from the soul. That is to say, it claims you aren't your body. You're only your soul. Your true self, your real identity is found in your soul and not your body. Is that what Adam experienced? Did he not become a living being when God breathed into him? Was there not a union between body and soul? And even in the passage that Mike read this morning from Job, what does God say? Yet in my flesh, I will see God. He probably wrote that around the time of Abraham, if not earlier. And he already knew, my body is me. 
Now that's not to say that my body is all of me and there is no soul, but my body truly is me. There's also my soul, that too is me, but you can't separate them. Then it goes past that dichotomy and it says the soul is superior to the body. It subordinates the body to the soul. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense in our society at all because this is a naturalistic society. What are the acceptable things you can say in our society? They all have to be grounded in what you can see and touch and test scientifically. And then they turn around and define themselves as what you can't see or touch or test scientifically. No wonder it's such chaos. They subordinate the body to the soul. And then, most importantly, they define the soul as your feelings or desires. Now, understand where they're coming from and why they are saying this. If you accept that you are your feelings, if you accept that who you truly are is what you feel, then if you feel one way, to deny that is to reject you. Because that's all they have left of you is what they feel. No wonder they have to act on their feelings. That's not to excuse it, but it's good for us to understand why it's so difficult for them to say no. They believe their whole identity and existence is wrapped up in what they feel. I want to save the clearest biblical answer until we read 1 Corinthians 6. But let me respond with a few other questions that I think might help. How do you know which feelings determine your soul? How do you know which one of, which one of your many feelings determine your soul or who you are? Aren't we all full of many desires and feelings? And if you've been a human being for very long, you know that your feelings are apt to change. Any, anyone want to admit they don't feel precisely the way they did about their spouse after 10 or 20 or 30 or 70 years of marriage? Hopefully you feel far greater, but you don't feel the same. And what do you do when you're angry and you've lost your mind and you don't feel a way towards your spouse, does that mean then that your identity is no longer married to them? So why give priority to our feelings? Why subordinate our bodies to our feelings when our feelings are fickle and often lie to us? How many times did you feel certain of something that you found out later was wrong? Why trust your feelings and why subordinate your body to it? Your identity is wrapped up in your body, which has been a consistent and easy sign to read from the moment you were born. What did the doctor say? 
It's a boy. It's a girl. From the very beginning, it didn't take rocket science or scientific experiments to figure it out. And that's part of who you are. Now, much more can be said on that, but I want to read what the Bible says about homosexuality. And then I want to ask, what can we do to love those who support homosexuality? We're going to look at four main passages one from Leviticus, one from Timothy, 1 Timothy, one from Romans, and one from 1 Corinthians. The text is on the back of your insert if you find that helpful, or you can follow along in your Bibles. Let's begin with Leviticus chapter 18, 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Two very clear, easy to understand conclusions regarding homosexuality from these passages. One, it is an abomination. It is an abomination. Now, I don't use that word, nor do I think Moses uses that word as a sort of insult. The idea is that God finds it repulsive or repugnant. We are not name-calling to say it is an abomination. God rejects it. Keep in mind, God also rejects idolatry, of which we are warned we must guard ourselves against idolatry. He also calls false weights or scales an abomination so he is not saying this is the worst of all this isn't name calling but god finds this practice to be repulsive second under the law of moses it was worthy of death it was given the death penalty there were many things in the law of Moses for which the death penalty was assigned, uh, somewhat debatable, but I believe at least a dozen of them. Kidnapping was one of them, by the way. Uh, adultery would be, worshiping a false god would be. Those would all be worthy of death. There's a bigger question when we look at Leviticus because you know if you've read Leviticus, there's also a whole lot of laws in there that we don't follow today. There are laws against weaving two types of fabric together. There's laws against planting two types of seed in the same uh, plot and on the farm. And we don't observe those. And so 
there's some question, I think the answer becomes clear, there's some question as to whether or not these laws should be applied, but I think we do learn what God thinks about it. Let's jump to the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 8, 1 Timothy 1, 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with whom, with which I have been entrusted. So we see in this passage, among a list of various sins, there is a clear condemnation again of homosexuality. Look first at uh, number one, how it's described. It is not just It is not lawless. It is, I'm sorry, it is lawless. It is ungodly and it is unholy. It is all of those things. So is sexual immorality of any kind. It is not just homosexuality, but any perversion of God's design in regard to sexuality. Any of you ever lied? Don't raise your hand. I think we would all raise our hands. And whether or not we have spoken it or sworn it, we have all done it in some way, shape, or form. And Paul says liars are contrary to sound doctrine. Liars are unholy, ungodly, and lawless. But... So is homosexuality. Also, Paul says here, it is contrary to sound doctrine. It contradicts sound doctrine. The faithful teaching of God's word would lead us to live in a certain way. And all of these things contradict that sound doctrine. It opposes what is true, right, or sound teaching. Next, turn over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, 
We're not going to go through the whole chapter here, but the flow of argument is God revealed himself to them. They suppressed the truth. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And this is what happened. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. And verse 26, this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What do you mean, Paul? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. They had natural relations and they changed them for that which is contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's probably no more explicit passage in the Bible dealing with the topic. There's no question the Bible is talking about homosexuality. This is exactly what the Bible is talking about when it deals with this issue. Men doing with men shameless things. Women giving up natural relations for unnatural ones. And we learn that homosexuality, and this verse is explicitly dealing with homosexuality, not a bunch of other sins also. Number one, it is a dishonorable, consuming passion. It is a dishonorable, consuming passion. And two, it is contrary to nature, and shameless. It is contrary to nature and shameless. I think what Paul means when he says that this is contrary to nature is that it is a perversion of our bodies as they were designed. God created us. We are his creatures and he made us as he saw fit. And when he had made Adam, what did he say? It is not good for man to be alone. And he brought before him all of the creatures in the world, all of the animals that he had made. And Adam named them, but there was no helper found that was suitable for him. And then what did Adam do? I'm sorry, what did God do? Adam stood there with his mouth open with no answer at all. He had no clue what to do. But God put him to sleep and he took out a portion of his side, his, his rib, no doubt including some flesh also, sewed it back up and he fashioned woman. Side note, just a fun side note. When God made man, he used dirt. When God made woman, he used flesh and bones. Interesting. Um, totally beside the point. So when Paul says that this is contrary to nature, 
What he is saying is that God designed our bodies to act in a certain way, to have a certain relationship with one another, and this act of homosexuality is contrary to that nature. He also says it will receive a due penalty in themselves, which may very well mean in their bodies. Next, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our last passage. There are a few other passages that deal with the issue. These are the ones that speak directly to the issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is such a helpful passage in dealing with the issue of homosexuality. First, we learn that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. And it's interesting, he begins in verse 9, or begins the list in verse 9 by saying, do not be deceived. He doesn't say that when you're not going to be deceived. He says that when we're apt to be deceived. You might think otherwise. You may have heard the gospel told in such a way that makes you think this isn't true. But it is true. Those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither will adulterers. Neither will the sexually immoral. Neither will the idolaters. Neither will the greedy. They won't. Go back in your mind to our second principle. That our identity is defined by our feelings. And this is where the whole thing for them unravels. If I'm defined by my feelings, how many of you in this room within the last week have had a greedy feeling. Probably every one of us, only Pastor Jeremy raised his hand. (laughs) And Abner. (laughs) We've all had those feelings, whether or not this week we certainly have. How many of you have been tempted to revile someone, speak ill of them, How many of us have been tempted to steal or to swindle or to drink to excess? Oh, so many of us, right? 
If I take my feelings and let them define who I am, then every one of us is an idolater and a swindler and a reviler and sexually immoral because we've all been tempted or had the desire to do those things. Maybe not all of them, but many of them. What that leaves us with then is a a very apt response to someone who says, I can't hide who I am. I am this. How do you know you are? How do you know that you are a homosexual? You say, because of my feelings, because of my thoughts, because of what I want. But would you say the same thing to a thief? How do you know you are a thief? Because you desired something that wasn't yours? Because the thought came to your mind to take it? Am I a thief because I want what you have? I, I may be covetous, but I'm not a thief until I take it. I become a thief when I accept that desire and act on it. I become an adulterer when I accept that illicit desire and I act on it. And Paul is not, praise God, he is not saying that no one who's ever had those feelings is going to heaven. He is saying that those who embrace it, those who accept it, those who act upon it will not. But with that comes the greatest encouragement, I think, in verse 11, and such were some of you. That means that in the church in Corinth, there were those who used to practice homosexuality. In the church in Corinth, there were those who were drunkards. There were those who were swindlers. They were. But what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is the gospel. Not that we are confined to our feelings, but that God is powerful enough to free us from those. He is powerful enough to give us victory over those feelings. And the world says, if you have that feeling and you do anything but accept it and embrace it and act on it, you're inauthentic, you're denying who you truly are. No, I know who I am because I can see my body. I know what God has designed me to be because I can see my body. Regardless of what I feel, I know what God has called me to do. If God made the thief that way, who can keep him or who can accuse him, who can hold him accountable for stealing? If you were talking to a thief who said, I really, I know I'm a thief because I really, really want to take that. I really, I do. And they said, God made me this way. I know God made me and God made me and I have these feelings so I know that God has made me to do it. I, I can't keep it hidden. 
I've got to go and steal. I need to be authentic with who I am. Would any of us take that line of reasoning seriously? Would any of us believe that that was a valid reason to go ahead and steal then? What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 is not those who have a desire for homosexuality or those who have a feeling that is homosexual won't inherit the kingdom of God. That's not what he says. It is those who practice it. It is those who accept it and embrace it that cannot have a part in the kingdom. These aren't the list of the worst sins, and so these people are going to hell. This is a list of several sins, all of which, if you embrace, will keep you out of heaven. What's so damaging about our culture right now is not just that it encourages people to sin, to commit acts of sin, but it forces people to identify themselves with their desires. What does the man say who believes that he is gay? I'm born this way, and what does the culture tell him? You're trapped. There's nothing you can do about it. You are that, and if you fight it for a second, you're inauthentic, and you're going to be rejected. Will the world tell us you've got to be greedy? It's who you are. You were born that way. You can't deny you have those feelings. There are feelings that we have And every one of us has different inclinations, different desires. There are things that many of you are tempted with that don't tempt me at all. And there are things I'm tempted with that probably wouldn't tempt you at all. We're all unique, but each one of us must respond to that temptation with God's word and reject this idea that whatever I want defines who I am. God defined who you are. Your feelings can lie. I want to close our time by looking at how to love those who support homosexuality. And I phrase it that way because I'm thinking not just those who are practicing homosexuality, but of those who might advocate it. How how do we love them? What can we say in response to them? And I just want to give three Principles. Hopefully these you can expand into a variety of ways to apply in your life. First, acknowledge God's grace if you're not enticed by this sin. And don't minimize the sins you are enticed by. It, it probably, I don't know if this is a media uh, controversy or what, but the controversy, sorry. I don't know. I don't know if the media is behind this or not, but it's not uncommon to picture the Christian as yelling at and screaming at the homosexual as though that's the worst sin in the world, all the while they're ignoring the sin that's in their own heart. That is shameful. That is hypocritical. We should not do that. We can't minimize our own sin. Don't make light of the sin that is in your heart. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? 
he tells us that the, the actions that we commit come from our hearts. And it is those desires of our heart that prove we're guilty. We're sinners. We need to be saved. So even if you have not committed one of these acts, the desire for it in your heart means that you're corrupt. What then does that put us in? It puts us in a position where what we need is God's grace. We need it. Not them, not those bad people out there. We'd never do any of that. We wouldn't have those feelings. How do you know? Do you think so highly of yourself that you would not descend into some of these behaviors if God removed his grace from your life? We shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should see in the depths of our own heart that inclination to sin which if unchecked would lead us to the very gates of hell. There is nothing that can be done that you would not do if God did not give you grace. So we don't look down at those who deal with this particular sin as though they're worse than we are. We received grace and we don't stand in judgment over them because we're superior We only want to bring to them the truth of God's word and what it says about their behavior. So we need to acknowledge God's grace if you're not enticed by this. And then we need to recognize, acknowledge our own guilt and not minimize that sin. Second, we need to be prepared to welcome believers who wrestle against this sin. You, you may think that Christians don't wrestle with this or struggle with this. I don't think that's true. I don't think you could show that biblically. <clears throat> the truth is we all have different struggles and there will be some Christians who struggle with this sin. What will we do if we find that out? Will we say, oh, that's, that's an abomination? Stay away from me. Or will we say, like Paul, yeah, that makes sense because such were some of you. Of course you deal with that. And I deal with this. We have to, we have to be ready to embrace those who are willing to fight against this sin, just like any other sin. And so Christians either who are coming out of such a a, a lifestyle or Christians who have not been in that lifestyle but still have those struggles or temptations, we need to be willing to accept them as brothers as long as they are willing to fight against it. And that might be hard for us. Culturally, it may be uncomfortable for us, but I believe that 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear we should be ready to do that just like we would be ready to walk with somebody who was an adulterer but is willing to fight against it. We need to be ready to walk with them. We need to be ready to embrace them and accept their repentance if they will fight against it. And then third, remember that it is never loving to accept someone's sin. It's never loving to accept someone's sin. It's not our job to judge those who are outside the church. 
Don't try to make it your job to tell everyone outside the church that they're wrong. That's not the point. But we must not affirm sin. It's not loving for us to accept someone's sin. What are we doing to a person who wants to sin and we give them a pat on the back and say, okay, well, if that seems okay to you, go ahead and do it. What are we saying to them? I think there's a few things that we're implying. One is God doesn't really know what he's talking about. I think that's probably the first one. If you think that's okay, even though God has said otherwise, go ahead and do it. I'm sure it's going to be fine. No, 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 no. God says not to do these things for a reason. He speaks of the consequences of this sin. He speaks of the consequences of many sins. Are you loving your neighbor? If your neighbor says, hey, uh, the duffel bag in the back of the car, I'm going to go rob the bank. Got a mask in it. I'm about to go do that. Is that a good idea? Well, I just want to affirm you. I want to I want, to, I want you to know I accept you. Is that going to help? If we prevent them from going to the robbery, why are we doing it? Perhaps out of a love for the bank. Maybe your brother owns the bank. Perhaps. But I think why we care about them doing it is because we know what it's going to lead to. We know that if they are caught, they're going to suffer terrible consequences. And we know that if they get away with it, they're going to suffer consequences. What will their life become like if they have a successful robbery? It will go downhill. So it's not loving on our end to accept someone's sin. That's true in the body and it's true out of the body. When God says that something is wrong, he says it for our benefit. And so if we pretend like, well, I, who, who am I to judge? Look, God's word says it. And if you accept the sin contrary to God's word, you're not loving that person. In effect, you're hating them because you're allowing them to walk down a path that will ultimately damage, destroy, and hurt them. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that our hearts would be aware of their wickedness, that our hearts would be aware of how prone we are to wander, how prone we are to idolatry, which is an abomination in your sight. And I pray that as we look at the sin of homosexuality and are forced to deal with it in so many ways by our culture, that our heart would not stand up in self-righteous condemnation, but that our heart would cry out in, in anguish for these people who are turning away from your word, that we would seek to bring them back, seek to tell them the truth, that they might be spared. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we interact with those who practice homosexuality and those who advocate homosexuality that our words would be directed back to your word and that we would use words of encouragement and exhortation
to offer hope that you can be washed and cleansed and sanctified and that we would bring that hope to this confused world that we are living in. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.